inerrant, infallible word, to remember that the words of Scripture are breathed out by God and that they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction and for training in righteousness. That's what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16. When we're studying Old Testament narratives, which especially relate to Israel, it's important that we see the text through a New Testament lens. That is, we can only understand the Old Testament rightly in light of the New Testament. The New Testament helps us to see and rightly understand and discern how the stories of the Old Testament relate to us and why God even cares if we read these stories about people that we uh, have never known in our lives. For example, when we read through and study a book like Zechariah, which we'll be studying today, and if you want to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 10, that's where we'll be. When we, when we read and study through a book like Zechariah, it would be very easy for us to think that this relates only to the literal nation of Israel and has very, very little to do with us today. But we've already seen what Paul said to Timothy, and he's writing that to the New Testament church. We also see what Paul writes in Romans 15.4. He says this, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we we might have hope. He says, whatever was written in former days, what's he talking about there? there? What's he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament, all of it. He's referring to the poetry. He's referring to the historical narrative. He's referring to the Psalms, the wisdom literature, all of it. It was all written in former days. And for whom was it written? It was not written for the unbeliever. It wasn't even written for Israel necessarily. He says that it was written for our instruction. It was written for the church, for the people of God. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul writes of the Old Testament, he says this, he says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And the phrase, these things, if you look at the broader context of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things refers to uh, Israel's stories of sexual immorality, unbelief, idolatry, and these are all found throughout Israel's history as recorded in Scripture. And Paul says these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. They're written for the people of God throughout the ages. And no one else. So while the narrative that we're covering in our study of the book of Zechariah was written by Israel, was written uh, about Israel, God's intended audience is you and me. God's desire is that we would see both how great and how glorious he is, and that he is therefore worthy to be treasured above any earthly treasure, and that we see our need for him, and that we adjust our lives accordingly by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. The book of Zechariah is ultimately about trusting more fully in God, knowing that he is sovereign, 
knowing that he is wise, trusting in God when life gets difficult and when situations on the surface might look impossible. So throughout the book of Zechariah, we've seen God make many, many promises, one after another at times, profound, seemingly impossible promises at times. And we've seen that God has been faithful to uphold and fulfill every single one. But unlike the people to whom Zechariah spoke and ministered, we're looking at the bigger picture. We've, we've got the whole canon of, of Scripture to look at. We've got the whole book. We've got history to look at to see how some of these things were fulfilled. A generation after the temple was built, however, the people in Jerusalem were still feeling afraid. They were still feeling vulnerable because the nations that they were surrounded by were God-hating pagans. And while the temple had been rebuilt in Jerusalem, Nehemiah hadn't returned yet to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem to keep it safe from the enemies coming in. In the previous chapter, in chapter 9, we saw God make a lot of promises to Israel, but one thing, in speci- one thing specifically, he promised that he would destroy the nations surrounding Israel his people, his enemies that surrounded his people. And that was a promise that we saw uh, was fulfilled a few generations later through Alexander the Great and his military conquests. And so as we enter into chapter 10, we have to understand that while that promise had been made, it hadn't been fulfilled yet at the time that this was written. So the people are still frightened. Many of them were asking questions that, You often hear solid Christians say today questions like, God, where are you? God, what are you doing to protect me? God, what are you doing to provide for me? What are you waiting for? We have this time frame in our mind, right? But God's timing is always perfect. The 10th chapter of Zechariah will help us answer some of those types of questions, questions that really trace back to fear And fear that is in one way or another rooted in idolatry, rooted in not completely trusting God for whatever reason. And God responds to these questions as we continue looking at the oracle of the word of the Lord, which started back at the beginning of chapter 9. So God is the one speaking here as we come to chapter 10. He says this, verses 1 and 2. He says, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd." Now, the first thing that we should note, if you're looking at your Bible, if you've got it open in front of you or uh, turned on in your phone or tablet or whatever, the first thing that you should note is that this is written as a poem of sorts. If you're following along in your Bibles, you'll see that it's probably not written from all the way over on the left margin to all the way over on the right margin. It's probably indented, and it's probably broken up into bits and pieces, which lets us know that this is poetry, 
This is poetry, and that means that we should be looking for certain things. We should be looking for symbolic imagery. We should be looking for poetic elements. We should uh, see the structure of the passage, and we should see the small parts in light of the bigger picture. Great promises were made to the poor. Great promises were made to the downtrodden, the afflicted in the previous chapter. But God wants to make sure that the people, that his people understood that their God was the giver of every good gift. He wanted them to understand that the glory is his and his alone. He's the one who provides. Nothing happens by accident. He's making these promises to a community that was largely agricultural. They did a a lot of farming. They relied on harvest, right? They relied on a harvest and they relied on rain for their continued uh, existence as people. The nations they were surrounded by are all uh, very well known or were well known for having pagan gods to whom they would offer their prayers, uh, their sacrifices, their thanksgiving, If they wanted rain, they would pray and make sacrifices to the God of rain. If they were out at sea, they would pray and make sacrifices to the pagan gods of the sea. See, they they had gods that served all of their own personal needs, and they would kind of put those gods aside until they needed them, and then they would do what they needed to do to manipulate their gods. So their gods were small, Their gods were predictable. Their gods could be bribed. And these were the gods, these were the idols that the pagans looked to for their daily needs. And in light of this reality, God instructs them to ask him, to come to him requesting providence, requesting sustenance. He says, ask me for rain in the season of spring rain because I'm the one who makes the storm clouds. I'm the one who brings the storm clouds. Do this, ask me for it, and I'll give you rain and everyone will have a rich harvest of crops. Now we have to read and, and understand this in light of the context. Looking back to the end of the ninth chapter, the ninth chapter ended with God saying, grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. And how's that going to happen? How are they going to flourish in this sense in a land where water and grain are often very scarce? God says, come to me and ask me for it in its season. Don't, don't pray to some cloud in the sky to bring rain. Don't pray to the stars in the sky. Don't pray to some little piece of wood or piece of metal that's been carved or fashioned into a pagan idol. Don't ask these things to provide for you. We're to go to the God for whom nothing is impossible for our daily needs. Now again, this is poetry, so is God literally instructing them to pray to him for rain? Yes, he is. But the greater point, the deeper principle here, if you will, is that when the people pray to God and then start wondering where he is, the answer is that he's found in the daily provisions of life. And this is where we see the goodness of God in the fact that he sends rain upon both 
the just and the unjust, the righteous and the wicked, the wise man and the fool. They all profit from God's providence. That's called common grace, by the way. Common grace, it's stuff that we, we see all over the place. So we call it common grace. Jesus said that the Father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's grace. It's grace. The food that we eat, whatever money we might have, the water we drink, the clothes we wear, even the air that we breathe, these are all precious gifts from God. And and here's where it gets kind of tricky. Here's where it gets kind of tricky. We see people who reject God, who hate God, who rebel against God, who know nothing about God, who walk in utter darkness, enjoying all these things. These same things that that we have, that we attribute to common grace. They, They might even have more of these things or better versions of these things than we have. And what happens is that these things become so common in the sense that they are so abundant, they are so everywhere you look, that we start to take them for granted. We fail to recognize them for the gifts that they all are, that every breath is a gift. We fail to recognize them for the gifts that they are, and when we fail to see them as gifts, we forget that we should continue to ask God for them, and we forget that we should be thankful to God for them. And this is exactly what we see in verse 2. Look at verse 2. God says, For the household gods utter nonsense. And the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. What's God talking about here? He's talking about the tendency that people had, and still have, by the way. The human condition has not changed since Zechariah's day. He's talking about the tendency that people have to not come to God with their needs. Instead, what we see is that these people were going to their idols. They were going to a lesser version of God or a completely false idea of God. They were going to diviners, that is, false prophets and false teachers, people who claim to have some knowledge of God or some knowledge of the future or, you know, go on and on. It goes on and on. They're going to these things seeking comfort and seeking providence. And, of course, what what do you get? What do you think you get when you go to a false teacher for assurance and or comfort? You get a false sense of assurance. You get a false sense of comfort. That's the best that you can hope for from a false teacher. And this is one of the greatest problems facing the church today. There are so many false teachers And they are the ones that are the most visible because they've got all the money and so they buy TV time. But they're not the only ones because people see that and it trickles down into churches that aren't so visible. There are so many false teachers. There are so many teachers who either have a very low, low, low view of God and a very high view of humanity, or who do not know God 
at all. You have people flocking to the biggest churches in America because they want whatever the preacher himself is pursuing. Whatever he's pursuing is what he's preaching. Fame, money, material possessions, etc., etc. Or they want a God who isn't going to confront them in their sin, isn't going to ask them to change. They want a God who accepts them just as they are and has no interest in changing them or removing them from their comfort zone. The biggest church in America is built on a combination of all these things, plus the pursuit of the false god, the idol of self-esteem, which is one of the most prominent false gods in America in our day. Or they want a church where they can have some kind of experience. This is absolutely pervasive in our day. If you keep your finger on the pulse of the church in America, experience is the name of the game these days. Scores of self-professing Christians look to their feelings. They're looking to their emotions. They're looking to their, their intuitions, their own ideas of things instead of going to the Holy Scriptures for answers. And so they go to church expecting to walk away with nothing but positive emotions about the experience. And I'm not saying that experientialism is bad. It's not bad to experience the presence of God by any means. It's not a bad thing until it becomes more important than being confronted by truth or being confronted by conviction in the word of God. That's when it can become an idol. And this idol, this idolatry is like a tree that is deeply rooted in things like unbelief, pride, and selfishness. You want a God who will give you what your flesh desires? It's not difficult to find a church for that. This is the consumerist mindset that so many Americans so many people in general have toward church, a mindset which is also idolatrous, I might add. See, we have the tendency to see the church the same way that we've been trained, the same way that we've been brought up to view everything else as a product to suit our needs, to give us what we want, when we want, and how we want it. And when we don't get our way, we take our business elsewhere. That's what happens when our decisions are shaped by our emotions and our experiences rather than on the word of God. And so we see in our country today what God saw in Israel in Zechariah's day. People going to idols, people going to false teachers for comfort instead of going to God himself as the giver of every good gift. God quickly moves from the attention that he gave to those who were seeking comfort in the wrong places, to the people who held positions as spiritual teachers of the people. Look at verses 3 and 4. Again, this is poetic form, it's prose. God says, My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the, house, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. 
when things are going spiritually awry in a country, who gets the blame? Is it the people who go to the false teachers, or is it the false teachers themselves? I've just presented you with a false dichotomy. It's not one or the other. It's both. God holds each accountable. And yet, there is, throughout Scripture, a greater emphasis on God's wrath against the spiritual leaders who have neglected, abused, misled, spiritually starved, and deceived the sheep. The Bible has a lot to say about proper shepherding. And there's a great deal of emphasis on that in the next chapter, so I don't want to get too far ahead of of myself here. I'll just boil it down to the bare bones, so to speak. A significant part of the responsibility for the spiritual rebellion that was starting to happen in Israel, again, can be traced back to the spiritual failure of the leadership. And I just want to be honest and say that this is one of those things that has kept me awake late at night. The responsibility of preaching, of speaking on behalf of God, is something that no good pastor or spiritual leader should ever, ever take lightly. That's why James said, James 3.1, he said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you're a teacher, that should keep you pretty honest. A whole generation, practically, of, of preachers in our country almost entirely neglected the doctrine of repentance. Do you know why? It's because people don't want to be confronted with the reality of their need to change, of their need to repent, of their need to turn away from their sin and turn their hearts and surrender their hearts more fully to God because they don't want to be confronted with the reality that God hates sin. They want to hear, God loves me. They don't want to hear, God hates my sin. And so the doctrine of repentance is still, to this day, missing in many churches today. A couple whom I've, I've known for, I'll just say many years, they recently left a, a somewhat spirit-led church, or for, for lack of better terms, a spirit-led church that they had attended for the past 15 or 20 years. And part of the reason that they left is because the church services, they came to realize that the church services that were being put on every week were really just a show. And there was no talk of sin or repentance. I asked them, when was the last time your pastor preached on the need to repent? When was the last time he mentioned sin? And they said, I can't even remember. How can a church be spirit-led if they're not going to talk about sin? Let's think about this for a minute. How can a church claim to be spirit-led if they don't talk about sin, if they don't talk about repentance? Part of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring the conviction of sin. And how is anybody going to feel the conviction of sin if it never even gets mentioned? If we never talk about it. And this, just, this isn't just their former church. This is an epidemic in our nation. Pastors don't want to step on toes. They don't want to confront people by talking about sin, by talking about repentance, or anything else that makes people feel uncomfortable. And God is telling Zechariah that that makes him very angry. 
and that these shepherds will be punished for failing to lead the sheep properly. I'm somewhat comforted to know that this is not a new problem. It's not unique to our our culture, our world today. It's a problem that we see in Zechariah's day, just like it's a problem today. And God's remedy in Zechariah's day is laid out clearly here. The Lord himself will come and lead his people. How would God, who is spirit, come and lead his people? Fast forward roughly 450 years, give or take. And we see that God sent the good shepherd. We read that when this good shepherd saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Of course, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So where is God when things go awry? He's here. He's here. He's here in the common things of life. He's in the rain. He's in the air we breathe. That's all his grace. It's all his grace. That's where he is. He's providing for us. And he still calls and still cares for his sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He's still doing that today. He's still here beside us. And Zechariah says that he'll come from Judah. From Judah will come this cornerstone, this tent peg, this battle bow. All these titles describe Jesus. And in him, we find the answers to all of our questions and concerns. Where is God? He came in the likeness of man. He walked the earth just like you and I walked the earth. But he was fully man and fully God, the hypostatic union. What's God doing today? He's still calling. He's still caring for his sheep. He is still bringing many sons to glory. He is still the one and only mediator between God and man. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father where he is interceding in prayer to to the Father on behalf of his people. Look at verse 5. God says, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. Where is God? Where is this good shepherd? He's with us. He's with us. You'll find him by the side of his people in the midst of their battles. He hasn't left us like a ship without a rudder in the tempest of the storms of life. He hasn't left us alone to stand in the cultural inferno. When the culture says, bow the knee or face the furnace, and we refuse to bow the knee to the culture's demands, we find that Christ is with us, protecting us and strengthening us in the inferno. It has maybe never been more difficult to be a Christian in America than it is right now. So many are deceiving, so many are deceived. But here's the promise. If we're faithful, 
if we are seeking God, if we are allowing him to strengthen us, yielding ourselves to his power, he will stand with us in the battle. He will strengthen us in the battle. If we're faithful to fight the cultural currents that would drag us into the ever-increasing depths of cultural immorality, God is with us in the battle. We must not bow the knee to the culture's demands. As Peter and the apostle said, when they were faced with the same battle that we are basically today, they said, we must obey God rather than men. Because if God is for us, who can stand against us? If God is on our side, what do we have to fear? As Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 8.35, he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You can throw a, a whole bunch of other stuff on there. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? What's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of Christ. Now, some might think that God strengthens us to be still and silent. No, the presence of God's Spirit within us draws us into action. He gives us peace within while we face conflict and battles and trials and difficulties without. Where is God? He is in the midst of the battle, calling, caring for, leading, and strengthening his people. He continues, verses 6 to 8. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back, because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. The beautiful thing about this passage is that it really shows the compassion, the mercy of God when we fail in the battle, when we stop looking to him, when we, when we backslide, when his people backslide, when his people fall into a season of faithlessness, he's faithful to bring them back. He will bring them back. If they don't come back, it's because they never belonged to him in the first place. The generation to whom Zechariah ministered knew the sins of their fathers they knew why God had sent them into exile. The prophets had made that abundantly clear. The problems that their fathers had faced could be traced back to their sin. The exile into Babylon, being taken captive by Babylon, could be traced back to their father's sin, their deliberate, willful refusal to be obedient unto the Lord their God. As Matthew Henry, the famous reformer, notes in his commentary, he says, quote, the transgressions of their fathers for which they had been rejected shall not, only be, shall, shall not only not be visited upon them, but shall not be so much as remembered against them 
End quote. Judah, Israel, had sinned greatly, but God says, I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. God says that he'll whistle for them. That's the term that we see here. He'll, He'll whistle for them, for his people, and gather them in. Why does he do this? He says it right here. Because he has redeemed them. The word whistle gives us an image of a shepherd who whistles to call his sheep to him. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I shall give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now you might say, what does it even mean today to hear his voice? Good question. It means to be granted ears to hear and understand and to behold the glorious splendor of the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and to respond in faith and repentance. And for that to happen, for us to hear the voice of the good shepherd, we must avail ourselves regularly to him through the regular study of and meditation upon his word. The miracle of Scripture is that God still speaks to us when we read and study his word. Even though these words, the words that we find in our Bibles, even though they were written thousands of years ago, God still actively speaks through the Scriptures today. People say, uh, I want to hear God's voice. You want to hear God's voice? This is how you do it. This is exactly why we have to spend time in his word. This is exactly why we must spend time thinking deeply about the things in his word. Allowing him, allowing the Holy Spirit to use his word, to speak through his word, to search our hearts. And we must spend time in earnest prayer. That is how you hear the voice of the good shepherd. And why does he do all this? Why does he why does he even welcome anyone into his family as children of God? Why does he treat us as though we had never sinned against him? Does he make this promise to save and show compassion to his people because they're turning to him? Does he make this promise because they're, they're becoming faithful, they're, they're returning maybe to faithfulness, taking the initiative in seeking him? No, he tells us right here in very plain language that the reason that he will do this, the reason that he shows mercy and compassion to his people is because he is the Lord their God. It's because of who he is, not because of what we've done. It's who he is. And this is the same mercy, the same compassion that God offers to anyone who will place saving faith in Jesus Christ today. He will treat you as though you had never sinned and welcome you into his family. Though we were far off, though we were justly condemned for our sin, God showed compassion to us. He chose us before the foundations of the earth. He called us. He restored us. He strengthened us and strengthens us. And he looks upon us as if we had never been worthy of condemnation. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 6 says this. He chose us in him, in Jesus, that is, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Jesus, that is. Even though every single one of us, every single one of his children deserved to be cast into outer darkness, by his sovereign grace, he has redeemed us. He shed his own blood and ransomed us according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Though our sin had left a crimson stain, he's made us white as snow. He takes the initiative. God takes the initiative. He rescues us. He strengthens us, not for our own comfort, not for our own safety, but for the sake of his own glory, is what Paul says here in Ephesians. Let's continue. Zechariah uh, chapter 10, verses 9 to 12. God says, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. Now, while some would argue that this only applies specifically and exclusively to Israel, we have to see, again, this is, this is po- uh, poetic, this is prose, so we have to see this part in light of the whole context. Specifically, we need to see this in light of what we've learned about God as the shepherd who whistles, sending out a sovereign, effectual calling to his people with the understanding that his sheep hear his voice. They know him, they know his voice, they recognize his voice, and they respond by following him in faith and obedience. And that whistle call is the gospel itself. The calling to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that gets translated as scattered, if you look at verse 9, the word that gets translated as scattered refers to the type of scattering that a seed sower would practice. The seed sower scatters seed. To sow is actually the primary definition of this word. And if you're reading out of the King James Version, you'll see that that's how they translated this word. In fact, it's the primary translation of that Hebrew word. And so with this definition in mind, we have to understand that this doesn't refer to the scattering of Israel among the nations per se. It refers to God's gospel calling going out into all the nations. Those whom Christ has redeemed by his sovereign grace will be gathered by his sovereign and effectual calling. God will reap the harvest that he has sown among the nations. His common grace, which we started this passage with, his common grace is extended to all of humanity. His common grace is abundant. 
His common grace is mind-blowing. It's amazing that God would extend any grace at all to those who would curse him with the very same breath that he's giving them, the same life that he has allowed them to live. The fact that we call it common grace should not in any way or by any means be taken to mean that it is less than amazing. His common grace is extended to all of humanity. His sovereign, effectual grace is extended to all of those whom he foreknew. It's amazing that God grants common grace because every person on the face of the earth has sinned and the wage of sin is death. For God to postpone just judgment for even two seconds is grace. Is common grace. To grant anything less than immediate wrath is grace. It would be grace if God were to just be done with us, wash his hands of us, cast us away and never deal with us again, just leave us on our own. It is unfathomable that God would sow a harvest among the nations bringing uncountable scores of sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all into one fold. Jesus said, John ten sixteen. he said, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. People twist that verse so bad, by the way. They'll say that it means that Jesus is saying that people from other religions have salvation. That is not what Jesus says here. He says, they will listen to my voice. They will listen to my voice, not the voice of Muhammad, not the voice of Buddha. They will listen to my voice. And this is the gathering that Zechariah is referring to. It's a gathering that's done by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the sovereign and effectual calling of God that takes place when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is proclaimed, when God's word is read. The gospel is not a a fire insurance policy, by the way. One of the things that I've heard it likened to so many times, a fire insurance policy, referring to people who, you know, they, they know that they're going to go to hell for, for sinning, and so they say, well, you know, we've we got to take out an insurance policy in case that really happens, and so they say the sinner's prayer, or they try to be good people, they try to live a life that, you know, exemplifies goodness, moral goodness. Maybe they go to church more often, or maybe they try to just do nice things for people. The Bible recognizes no faith anywhere that is the equivalent of a fire insurance policy as valid. That is not a valid faith. You get fire insurance in case a fire is coming. That is not the belief. That is not the faith that God calls us to. Fire insurance is something that you add to your life. You don't add Jesus to your life. That's not the way it works. That is not what the gospel invites the sinner to do. No, the gospel is a call to repent of your sin. To leave your old life behind. 
not add something to it, to leave your old life behind, to turn from your sin, to believe in Jesus, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, to surrender every aspect of your life to Christ. Not in case there's no other way to heaven, but because there is no other way to be forgiven and reconciled unto God. This is a gathering that's done by repenting of our sin and trusting fully in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross on the behalf of all who would place saving faith in him. See, fire insurance is based on uncertainty. Where does the Bible call for sinners to have lack of certainty toward God? Biblical faith is putting certainty into practice. The point of this whole chapter is that we see the loving kindness and the faithfulness of God as it extends to his people throughout history. For those who will place saving faith in Christ, God has foreknown you. He chose you. He called you. If you love him, it's because he loved you first. Though you are far off, he, he called you. He strengthens you in the battles of life today. He promises that he will be with you in your battles. And by his grace, by his wonderful and amazing grace, he sent his only son, Jesus, to live a perfect, sinless life and to bear the Father's wrath against your sin as your substitute And for that reason, he sees you and he treats you and he loves you as he loves his own son. This chapter forces us to see that God makes every provision for his people, but he instructs us to ask for it by coming to him in prayer for everything from the common things in life that we could so easily take for granted to strength for the battle and everything in between. We're to come to him for strength, for sustenance, for everything. And so I implore you to look to him, to come to him in prayer, to come to him in certainty, to come to him in faith, and to trust him, to believe his promises And do not fear. Do not fear when the storms and trials of life come because he's with you in the battle. Let's pray. Our Father, as we close our time of study this morning, we Remember that Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread. The common things. And with the same breath, we remember he instructed us to pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to ask that you would forgive us of our sins. Father, the, the cultural tide would drag us all into a sea of immoral godlessness if you would not strengthen us. 
And so we pray for your strength in the battles of life. We thank you for your grace in the times that we fail. We thank you that you welcome us to yourself through repentance, through faith in your Son who bore our sin and who was bruised for our transgressions in order that we would be reconciled unto you. So, Father, grant us the wisdom to see your grace in the common things of life that we're tempted to take for granted. And we ask that you would grant us strength and conviction in the battle to stand in you, to remember and stand on your promises for your glory to be displayed in our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Be with us. Help us. Strengthen us. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.